0: In our morning services, if you're here in the morning, we've been in the middle of a series called uh, The Church That Jesus Would Build, and we're thinking about some of the, I guess, the foundational elements of what a Christ-like church uh, looks like, and we've looked at things like a place where everyone has a voice, a place where church is family, that is devoted to one another, a place that hosts the presence of God... Uh, this morning, David at Marley Hill spoke about a compassionate place, and we want to be a missional, outward-focused place as well, and I think it's really important that we do this because, sadly, there's probably a few churches we can maybe think of that don't seem that Christ-like. Sorry, forgive me for saying that, uh, but in like uh, the era of social media or maybe politics and all that sort of stuff, it can feel like a lot of the church is drawn into stuff aside from maybe what Christ... Uh, wants to build us into, so it's really important to think about this, and to complement that series, we're going to spend a few weeks looking at a series called Surprised by Jesus in the evenings, because if we want to build a church that Jesus would have us build, I think we need to be open to being surprised and challenged by what he might say to us, because in my experience, as soon as you think you have a handle on what Jesus is about, if you think you've got him sussed, then that's when I've tended to get into trouble and so the teachings of Christ are just as revolutionary today as they were 2,000 years ago. And so we want to sit at his feet and we want to let his words bring challenge to us. Um, and today I'm going to look about the morality of Jesus. And so, I don't know, it's, quite a, it's, it's a word we don't really use. You might think of like philosophers if, if you talk about that. But I think Jesus was and is the greatest moral philosopher ever to live, the greatest moral teacher ever to live. And his morality is so different, jarring, challenging, inviting to us. And the way he would have us make good of our lives is so different to the messages we're given outside of this church, even different to the urges and the the feelings we get inside of us. We need to listen to what he has to say. And if I was going to summarize uh, tonight's talk in one quote by the author Dane Ortland, he said this, The gospel is God's provision of free acceptance in Christ, utterly apart from our own detraction from, or contribution to, that acceptance. If that is so, then not only moral failing, but also moral success is excluded from God's love for us. So we're going to dive into the Bible. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Matthew 19. It'll come up on the screen as well, and I'm going to start reading to us from verse 16. So this is about Jesus and a wealthy young man. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments." He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions Then It doesn't say that. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's God's word. It's a very well-known story in the Gospels, it appears in a few of the Gospels, and it includes that fundamental question that I think all of humanity asks, whether or not they admit it. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to make sure my life counts? What must I do to make my life have meaning? What must I do to make my life continue on into eternity? And it's a really understandable and obvious question in one sense. Yet at the same time, it's a question that in light of the gospel makes no sense whatsoever. It's like asking, what vegetables do I need to eat to win an Oscar? (laughs) Eating vegetables is important, but totally irrelevant from winning an Oscar. You see, the man asks, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And of course, good deeds by nature and by name are good. But they have nothing to do with eternal life. Obedience to God is important. Living a moral life is important. Treating others with respect. Seeking justice in our community. These are all important. But they have nothing to do with eternal life. And the reason is this eternal life with Jesus is not obtained or gained, it is given. Eternal life with Jesus is not obtained or gained, it is given. So in answer to the man, Jesus cites a list of Old Testament laws. And all of the ones he quotes deal with our relations with other humans. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, etc. And he lists them all and he actually misses out one, which is you shall not covet. And I think he was being quite clever because that is one that deals with the heart. You could almost say that Jesus was very lovingly setting him up a little bit. Because he lists all these external laws and the man is like, get in, I've, I've done them. I've done all of those. So he replies with confidence, I have kept all those laws. And he steps right into the loving trap that Jesus set for him. Because he still senses deep down that he is missing something in his life. He is a moral man, yet he knows. Why else would he be asking the question if he didn't know deep down something was missing and so Jesus I think confirms his deepest fear if you would be perfect go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and it says when he heard this he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions in another one of the gospels the Greek word it uses there for sorrow is the same Greek word that's used in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus weeps blood This is the level of grief this young man was feeling at the invitation to give away all that he owned. And Jesus did this. He lovingly set him up to show him his sin. Not by telling him he needed to give away all of his possessions to follow God, but that possessions were his God. Sometimes we read this and we think, gosh, if you're a Christian, what, are we meant to give everything away? Is that the call of Christ? And I don't think that's the call. It could be. Never say never, watch out. But I don't think that's the call of Christ fundamentally. Jesus doesn't bid us to give away our possessions. He bids us to give away our idols. Come, follow me, and give away the things that sit on the throne of your heart instead of me. And if that is your possessions, then he will call you to give them up. If it's your career, he may do the same. If it's your relationships, whatever it is, come, follow me, and lay them down. And so he leaves devastated and Jesus turns to the disciples. And again, he makes that famous statement that it will be harder, easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And living in the Western world as I have all my life, I've heard so many people try and like explain that away as some sort of analogy or like there was some gate where a camel couldn't get through. And honestly, in all of my study, the only conclusion I can come to is Jesus was being literal. He was saying he thought of something really small and then he thought of something really big. And if he'd been alive today, he might have just said it's easier for a redwood tree to fit through a subatomic particle. But physics hadn't quite got there yet when he talked about it. So he's basically saying it's really hard. And the problem is this, is that the disciples are left horrified because in the Jewish culture, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. This man kept the law And he had also been blessed financially. So the disciples, this guy was like a sort of A-star Jewish man. And Jesus has turned to him and said, give it all away if you want to get into heaven. And they can't compute it. And it's funny how some things have never changed. In our society, the rich and the famous are held up as sort of paragons of virtue. We read about the super rich all the time. The The things they do, the social media companies they've bought, or, you know, we, I mean, I quite like Dragon's Den, but, you know, we watch Dragon's Den, and they're sort of held up as these, like, amazing people because they've made money. Wealth is often taken as a sign of success, but Jesus' words ring hollow in our ears. Peter then pipes up in classic Peter style, bless him, and he says, we have left everything So whereas the rich man refused to give away what he had, Peter says, well, hang on, we've done just that. Inside he's thinking, brilliant, if he's in trouble because he won't give his stuff away, we have given it all away, so that's my place in heaven secure. But despite their different responses, I would say the two have a very, uh, they are united in treating how they follow Jesus in the same way as a transaction. Dane Ortland puts it like this, the rich man wanted his riches so he didn't follow Jesus. Peter wanted a reward so he did follow Jesus. The trap they both fell into was not wanting Jesus. The rich man thought he could attain salvation through law keeping. Peter thought he could attain it through sacrifice. Both missed the point. And this is a really key point. Because in our walk with God, disobedience and obedience can fall into the same category of not being motivated by love for Jesus take the prodigal son and the older brother one a lawbreaker one a law keeper both in the wrong both in the wrong it is where your heart is at that matters to god And so maybe you're here tonight and you think that what you have done has excluded you from the love of God. Or maybe you're here tonight and you are hoping that what you have done will include you in the love of God. Well, there's a relief for all of us because neither are true. The love of God and the promise of eternal life is a free gift to us. So in the world today, there are not people who are sinful and people who are not sinful. There are people who are sinful and people who know they're sinful. That's it. Jesus continues just to sort of blow their... Uh, first century jewish minds he doesn't stop there in the next chapter he 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 tells this parable of laborers in a vineyard where the master hires a group of workers for the day and as the day progresses he continues to hire more right up to the 11th hour and they get to the end and he pays them all the same and i've got to be honest when i read that i just feel annoyed because i just picture myself being the people that get hired at the start of the day and i'm like it's just not fair like I, I, Jesus is Jesus, but it doesn't sound fair. And again, when that, when that thing inside of me sort of rises up, that indignant urge, it just highlights maybe an area in my life where I have totally misunderstood the gospel. Because it all rests on the generosity of the Father. It's not down to what we do or how long we've done it. It is his generosity to us that we accept salvation is a free gift that can't be earned think about the thief on the cross we read that there's Jesus on the cross and there was two of the thieves and in one of the gospels it said they're even cursing him out they're mocking him and then we know the famous story just as they're breathing his last one of them turns to Jesus and Jesus says you will be with me in eternity he hadn't he didn't have a He hadn't been to Bible studies. He hadn't served the church his whole life. But Jesus' free gift of salvation is always available. And this is such a lesson to those of us that have been in church a long time. I've been in church, you know, most pretty much, well, my whole life. And it's so easy to look back through your life and say, well, look, I've been putting the chairs out for 48 years. Or I've been serving coffee. Or I've been leading worship. And it, it can feel like... The temptation is to feel like it's a bank that you've been paying into. Just putting in your change. And then you can go to God and go, look at all this that I've done for you. You who need me <laughs> or not. And, and it's so, that's so easy to feel that way, isn't it? But it's nothing of the sort. Our response to God is just a response to his love. We can't earn it. Law keeping and sacrifice, two sides of the same coin. But both pose dangers to us as we follow Jesus, because they are so easily, they so easily become an equation in our lives. We think law keeping can win us God's favor. We think sacrifice can win God's favor. We think fill in the blank can win God's favor and none of them can. You know, it's easy to think we'll grow in the Lord by redoubling our our efforts at being moral or extending your quiet time Having a quiet time at all, redoubling our efforts at sacrificing, but ultimately our growth must stem from us again and again and again coming back to the wonder and awe of the free gift of grace. Do you ever have that thing where you sit down in church sometimes and maybe the preacher says, You know, I'm just going to preach the gospel. And then you think, oh gosh, I've I've heard that a thousand times. And I just think we need to recapture a bit of the wonder of the gospel and that free gift that God gave us. Dane Ortland says this, your disobedience is never healed by obedience. Your immorality is never healed by morality. Our broken lives are only healed by the lavish love of God. He says the only thing that qualifies you is knowing that you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. The only thing that qualifies you is knowing that you don't qualify. And the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do. And so I just want to uh, jump also into the further into the New Testament just to make this point a bit further. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 17. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians before, it is, it is good. I recommend reading it. So I'm going to read to us uh, from 1 Corinthians 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Such good stuff. I also dipped into chapter two a bit there. When you read the Bible, don't be hung up by chapters and verses. They were added about 500 years after the canon was finalized, so it was <laughs> they weren't necessarily part of the original uh, structure, but they are helpful, obviously, for memorizing stuff. Because this is an amazing passage and uh, there's a a biblical scholar called Ken Bailey and he shows how it can be split into three parts, which will come up here. So the first section deals with the wise words and wise people are inadequate. The third section again mirrors that. Wise words and wise people are inadequate. And right in the, in the, the middle, the meat of the sandwich, the power and wisdom of God in the cross. And what's amazing is that the way this passage works is, is that it goes further than that in terms of how it mirrors each other. So the, the lines at the start mirror the lines at the bottom, and it slowly creeps its way in. And if you put the next slide on, I really need to be basically sat with you with our Bibles open. It's really hard to communicate this, but I'll do my best. So if you see at the start, Christ sent me, Paul said, and then you see it mirrored at the bottom in 2, 1, 2, I came. To proclaim the testimony of God, not with eloquent words or wisdom, not with wisdom, but Christ crucified. We then step in a bit closer to the center. He talks about two negatives, folly and boasting, the power of God. And then he gives two Old Testament references. Again, mirrored, we creep ever closer. Where is the one that is wise? Not many of you are wise or powerful. God made foolish the wisdom of the world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. We're getting closer. We're getting closer to the the center. God is wise. The world is not. God is wise. The world is not. You can go home and you can look. And if you make your way through, it begins to creep closer and closer to the middle. The folly of the gospel saves those who believe. The power of Christ saves those who are called. We're getting really hot now. It's like that game where you're very hot or cold. The Jews demand a sign. The Greeks' wisdom it's a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles and a smack bang in the middle of this Pauline hymn, We Preach Christ Crucified. Folly to the world, but the saving power to us that believe. It's so good. So we're going to qu- I'm going to quickly play a short video now, if Joe uh, has a hand on the
1: trigger. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves, all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I. Because I believed. Because I have faith. Because I am this. Because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he. Because he. Think about the thief on the cross— and what an immense! I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him how did that shake out for you? Because you were you were you were you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never you didn't know a thing about church membership, and, and yet and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we're, 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 did you, the, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So, so, we're just a few questions for you. First of all, are you—are you—are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And and what about—let's uh, just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the— That is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair— and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out, and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that justice is satisfied to look on him and pardon me.
0: The man on the middle cross said, I can come. Why don't, why don't we stand and we're just going to welcome the Holy Spirit. And like I said earlier in the talk, maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you feel like what you have done has excluded you from the love of God. Or maybe you're, you're here tonight and you have been hoping that what you have done has included you in the love of God. Well, we just want to receive a fresh infilling of the grace and love of God, a free gift. So Father, we just welcome you here. C.S. Lewis said this, That is why the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God. Or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. So Father, I pray now that your love in this moment will come and shine on us. And where there are dark areas in our heart, areas where we have tried to make things right in our own strength, or areas of sin that we know need your love and your Holy Spirit to come into. We just invite your light now to come into those dark areas, Father. And we open ourselves up to the work of your Holy Spirit.